2: and the spectacular Scott Tobias ham. Every week we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week we'll be looking at two different takes on Spider-Man, the superhero created by writer Stan Lee and artist Steve Ditko. The first offers a reverent take on classic Spider-Man comics and comes from a long ago time when it wasn't yet apparent that superhero movies would be a big deal for years to come. The distant past of the year 2004. The second is in theaters now and takes Spider-Man, the character and the idea in directions neither Lee nor Ditko ever could have imagined. Tasha, can you tell us more?
4: It was a sweltering June Friday in 2004. The humidity hung in the air like the sweat of an angry god, and I wanted some relief, so I ducked into a downtown movie palace. The marquee read hot dogs and healthily cooled air. Frankly, those mattered to me more than what was playing something called Spider Man 2. Okay, sorry. I don't. I don't know what came over me there. I was. I was trying to talk about the first film in this week's pairing, uh, the Sam Raimi directed Spider Man Two,
2: a sequel to his two thousand and two hit Spider Man. Is it possible you were taken over by the spirit of an alternate universe, Tasha Robinson?
4: Yeah, it's it's certainly possible. I mean, especially if the reality we live in bears any resemblance to that of the second film in our pairing, Spider-Man: Into the Spider-Verse, an animated film that offers a kaleidoscopic spin on the Spider-Man story by teaming up a freshly bitten teenaged Spider-Man named Miles Morales with the burnt-out, embittered Peter Parker of another universe, then bringing in a gaggle of other Spider-Men, women, and pigs to do battle against a series of deadly foes. Thanks, Tasha. Kid, it was my
0: pleasure
2: we will be back after the break to dive into Raimi's Spider-Man 2.
0: So where you been,
4: pal? You don't return my calls. I've been kind of busy. Taking pictures of your friend? Spider-Man killed my father.
0: No matter what I do, do you love me or not?
2: No matter how hard I try, Spider-Man dead. It's the
1: ones I love who will always be the ones who pay.
0: I can't keep thinking about you.
1: I'm getting married.
2: I want a life of my own. I'm
4: Spider-Man. No more. You
0: look different.
3: I let things get in the way before. There was something I thought I had to do. I don't have to.
0: I like seeing you tonight, Peter.
3: Now into the main event.
4: Kavis is going to put Oscorp on the map in a way my father never even dreamed of.
1: Crazy scientist turns himself into some kind of a monster. Four mechanical arms welded right onto his body.
0: You take Spider-Man's pictures. Where is he?
2: It's ticking me off your loyalty to Spider-Man and not your best friend. Bring Spider-Man to me. How do I find him? Peter Parker. Find Spider-Man or I'll peel the flesh off her bones. There are bigger things happening here than me and you. We're going to be talking about Spider-Man 2, a film from 2004. But before we can do that, we first have to pay a couple of visits to 1962 and 2002. The first is the year that Stan Lee, with artists Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, and others, began filling Marvel Comics with a new sort of superhero. A vulnerable, sometimes quarrelsome, and often neurotic bunch that bore a greater resemblance to those reading the books than superheroes had ever done before. Lee and Ditko's Spider Man would, within a few years, become an instantly recognized icon. But Spider Man's success owed an awful lot to the relatability of Peter Parker, a troubled bully kid who discovers he has previously unimaginable powers after he's bitten by a radioactive spider. But to paraphrase a famously, quote, his new powers shackled him to new responsibilities. They also didn't free him from anxiety or unhappiness. Peter Parker is a character defined by his fear that he'll be unable to fulfill his obligations to his friends, his family, or the city of New York. He hates to disappoint others, yet finds himself doing it all the time. Flash forward to 2002 and the first big screen movie to star Spider-Man after years of attempts by filmmakers like James Cameron. Raimi's Spider-Man is faithful to the look and feel of classic Spider-Man comics. If the 2000 film X-Men suggested a superhero movie could stay true to the spirit of a comic while also connecting with a wider audience, Spider-Man confirmed it. The film retold Spidey's origin story and found a cast that seemed like the embodiments of Lee and Dick Coe's creations. Toby McGuire is a sensitive wide-eyed Peter, Kirsten Dunst is his neighbor and almost-girlfriend Mary Jane Watson, James Franco as Harry, a rich friend with a connection to Spider-Man's arch-nemesis, the Green Goblin, and so on. Audiences flocked to it, gratuitous Macy Gray musical sequence and all. A sequel was inevitable. Which brings us to 2004 and the overachieving sequel Spider-Man 2, which improves on its quite good predecessor in every way. The scope is widened, the effects look better, the color palette is deepened, Sam Raimi is looser with the direction, and the dialogue feels less beholden to the cadences of comic book dialogue. Most importantly, however, it's an emotionally richer movie. In Dr. Otto Octavius, it finds a genuinely sympathetic bad guy. One is motivated by loss as Spider-Man himself, and it gives Peter a storyline that finds his powers failing him as he loses confidence and decides maybe he's better off not being Spider-Man. Maybe, in fact, the world is better off without a Spider-Man in it. It's sophisticated stuff for any kind of blockbuster and an early sign that the superhero movie could tell complex stories with rich themes, becoming a high water mark for the subgenre that subsequent films, even Raimi's Spider-Man 3, have sometimes struggled to match. Raimi took a gamble similar to the one taken by Lee and Ditko four decades earlier, believing he could craft a superhero movie that could handle the weight of heavier material and making a film that proved it. Like Lee and Ditko, he took kid stuff and helped it grow up.
0: You'll never guess who he wants to be. (laughs) Spider-Man. Why? Well, he knows a hero when he sees one. Too few characters out there flying around like that, saving old girls like me. Lord knows, kids like Henry need a hero. Courageous, self-sacrificing people, setting examples for all of us. Everybody loves a hero. People line up for them, cheer them, scream their names, and years later they'll tell how they stood in the rain for hours just to get a glimpse of the one who taught him to hold on a second longer. I believe there's a hero in all of us that keeps us honest, gives us strength, makes us noble, and finally allows us to die with pride even though sometimes we have to be steady and and give up the thing we want the most. Even our dreams. Spider-Man did that for Henry, and he wonders where he's gone. He needs him. Do you think you could lift that desk and put it into the garage for me? But don't strain yourself. Okay.
2: All right everyone, I hadn't seen this movie in a few years. I really enjoyed rewatching it. How about everyone else?
3: Same. Mm. I like this is a movie that I have seen several times, but like you hadn't watched it in, I don't know, probably close to a decade. Mm -hmm. I I feel like it was on TV all the time for a a while there. So I watched it many times, but haven't revisited it since we've kind of reached peak superhero movie and maybe past peak superhero movie. So within the context of the last like five to eight years of, blockbuster superhero movies it was very interesting to return to and to see like how much of it still works really well even the parts that look decidedly different today
2: than they did Mm -hmm. back then yeah i feel like you don't really need to reach back in the past for your superhero movie fix anymore (laughs) revisiting these is not like an urgent matter and cause that in some ways but how about you tasha
4: i had sort of a mixed experience with it in that I, like I've come to really enjoy the Tom Holland version of Spider Man, mm-hmm. and watching him play that role in Spider Man: Homecoming and Infinity War, I felt like initially when he started turning up as a Spider Man that he was echoing Tobey Maguire's performance here. Now, going back and actually watching Tobey Maguire's performance, it seems so much bigger and goofier than than Tom Holland does. The whole film seems so much bigger and goofier and mm-hmm. Sam Raimi uh, yeah. than I remember it being. And that sort of, sort of doesn't sit well with me. Like I've never entirely enjoyed Sam Raimi's like injecting slapstick into his serious material, but at the same time, I'm really surprised at how good this movie looks, particularly with the Spider-Man effects. I mean, you can tell that you're looking at a CGI effect most of the time, but when you compare it to some of the, like the MCU wireframe characters today, it looks really good. You know, all of the web swinging sequences in particular just really get across the physics of Spider-Man, like how web slinging would work, why it would be fun. His habit of going (laughs) woohoo whenever he's swinging around (laughs) is really enjoyable. And uh, that train scene, man, I was a little out of the experience of watching this movie, just like, you know, kind of half analyzing it, maybe half laughing at it a little bit. Train sequence still chokes me up every yeah, single time.
2: We'll get to that. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right about that at least. Um, <laughs> but how about you, how about you Scott?
1: Um, I think this is my favorite superhero movie, period. I don't think I like f- any superhero film more than this one. Um, it's just so stylish and, and crisp, and, and it's got a great villain, and it's got a lot of emotion, but in w- a lot of whimsy. Uh, the performances I th- by Tobey McGuire and uh, Kirsten Dunst both are, are I think, ideal perfect i mean god bless tom holland i think he does a fine job with the role but but there's something so bold about casting toby mcguire and having him do his toby mcguire thing in the role of a superhero i don't think we've i think we've taken for granted how radical i guess that performance is in a way you know and i I think it just it establishes immediately what the what the conflict is and, and and it and also in a way that's kind of like disarming too about him trying to deliver pizzas and not quite getting it done and him having to live this crummy workaday life and and uh you know just showing hey it's not really all that glamorous a thing to be having to save people all all the time and then in the other time that you have you know you're you're inadequately doing your job and you're not paying the rent and you're not having a relationship that you want to have i mean i I think the film really gets all that uh, so nicely. It's a, it's a terrific movie, I think.
3: Before we get too far away from the performances, I don't want to skip over to Alfred Molina, mm-hmm. who, who I think probably has the highest level of difficulty here, because watching this movie again, I had forgotten how much Doc Ock talks to nobody in this movie, <laughs> just like stares at the horizon and delivers speeches. That's obviously, to a certain extent, born of comic book style and and dialogue and I think this movie is indebted to the comics medium in a lot of really interesting ways but you need to translate that sort of you know villain monologue to the screen the way it is here you need an actor with the gravitas of of Alfred Molina but also like not over much gravitas you know I think it's like he has a really good balance uh with the Doc Ock character
4: and it's an interesting uh, like Raimi requires a lot of interesting things from him because I mean I've written about how superhero movies have a tendency to put both the heroes and the villains into the same emotional place where they don't feel anything except like anger or fear anger or fear Mm -hmm. and it's just it all turns into this you know gray nothing you look at something like x-men apocalypse where you cast somebody as good as Oscar Isaac and then mm-hmm. bury him under makeup and never let him change expression and then you compare <laughs> that to this where he's he's doing the full on like villain arms in the yeah. air you know I <laughs> shall conquer like like full on operatic comedy horror villain mm-hmm. uh, it's just it's really it's a really diverse performance
2: I think it helps he gets there by degrees too like he's very down to earth may not be the right word but he's very you know a recognizably human character as, as the film opens and it's got kind of like a nice marriage. She's got aspirations, and then you know some He's bad things happen. <laughs> <laughs> some bad things happen, and that uh, kind of starts to fall away. You know, I think I think it's, it's yeah, you're right. It's done it done very well. I mean, you kind of struggle to think of a better comic book villain in the big screen i mean like michael b jordan and black panther comes to mind and not a lot of others There just there is there is a perpetual problem of villains uh making mm, them tom
4: hiddleston compelling. loki always a blast yeah. but yeah. so few of these characters are allowed to have personality mm-hmm. they're they're just met as a big growly threat molina's doc Ock, i mean say what you want about him he's definitely got personality
1: well i mean in the thing that connects um Doc Ock and Killmonger is just is just you understand their their thinking from the start. They get backstories, it, or they get yeah. origin stories. They do along they, with the heroes. And I mean, and there's such a such a thin line between this scientist who genuinely wants to to do something extraordinary to. Help the world and to, to to you know change the way that we you know use energy, and someone who's just so overcome by hubris that he's uh, he's this world destroying villain. The film articulates that so well. And one of the things that hadn't been brought up is the uh, the the effects of those arms is so brilliant. Like the use the, his interaction with those. Uh, mm-hmm. Devil on your shoulder type of uh, <laughs> attached arms is just so, such a smart choice and such a very Sam Raimi choice, too, right? And the way but, they're
2: anthropomorphized, too. They, they yeah. have like almost have like little faces, you know, they have, they have separate
4: personalities. Yeah. That was part of the design, was like each one of them has a, a separate designed personality. Yeah. They gave me kind of Audrey 2 vibes.
2: They're super Audrey 2 ish. Yeah. For sure. I, yeah, I like how much horror stuff is in this, how much like Raimi's background is in it. Like there's there's actually a shot of a of a screaming woman running at the camera. It's like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like it's, it turns into and that one sequence just basically turns into an evil dead movie uh, oh for sure too, but, chainsaw and all man yeah but it doesn't break i don't think it breaks with the tone of the film though
4: uh, i mean i think it sets the tone of the film because that's really i mean things go bonkers when the fusion reactor gets out of control but that's a much more like, you know, mechanical CGI driven set piece. The mm-hmm. the mayhem in the operating room is much more organic and much more character focused. Like you get little slashes of personality from a lot of those different people, including John Landis as the doctor, I believe.
2: Oh yeah, it's always in the credits. I didn't recognize him in, in the film though.
4: Yeah, the main speaking doctor that's like, does anybody remember Shop Class? <laughs> yeah. Mm, interesting. <laughs>
3: that sequence is like very quintessentially Raimi, but watching it too, I was kind of struck by how again evocative of the comic book medium it is because like that is an action sequence that uh is choreographed very similar to the way a lot of action sequences are in comics like almost in panels you know it's like and now here's this arm and now here's Mm -hmm. something happening over here and they like all kind of feed into each other but you don't necessarily get the big picture the whole time the way you do and the sequence with the fusion reactor going berserk you know that feels a lot more like something you'd see today in a, in a superhero movie and blockbuster. Whereas the operating room sequence feels like it, it is kind of like going back in the, the other direction toward the other medium, you know, at play here of the comic book panel.
1: And Raimi just seems to come about the comic book movie so naturally, stylistically. Because th- you think of something like Angley's Hulk, which is a movie I admire in a lot of respects. But I mean, that movie is like, we are going to try to recreate a comic book here that is going to be the style of film. And uh, and with Raimi, it, just, it feels much more organic to the way he's making the film. And every once in a while, you get these really beautiful... You know tableaus that he set up that, that, are, that are striking and evocative of a comic. I'm thinking of the end of the movie with uh, Mary Jane on the, in the spider web and just the mm-hmm. way that whole thing is framed is so so beautiful and so dynamic and so, you know, it has so much personality. I mean, that's, you know, of course, I, I'm going to start complaining about superhero movies today, but like <laughs> that, that's the one thing that's missing is direction. Uh, you know, I mean, this film is so directed and so much of Sam Raimi film in addition to delivering the goods as a, as a comic book movie.
3: At the
4: same time, the plotting is so goofy. Mm. I mean, the, the, the whole business where Doc Ock can rob, rob a bank of its giant bags of gold
3: coins. And <laughs> coins! Then... I was like, why Why is this bank like Scrooge McDuck's vault? Why are they dealing only in gold coins? It, they're dealing only in, in gold coins left in giant open sacks
4: and he steals a couple of them and then he goes to the villain apparently, and buys like Particle Accelerator's R.S. Tinker Toys with, with his bag of gold coins. Like, where do you go as a villain to drop off a bag of gold coins in exchange for science crates?
1: You he... don't want the scene with like the gold coin fence or something that he has to go through hey
4: I want, I want an villain. entire particle accelerator like, that's, well, a, that's, that's, a, that's gonna a, take at like... least two bags of gold coins
1: <laughs> ch- chunk but what's, what's, also... more, what's more comic book than just a sack of coins with like a little money sign on it
4: it's super comic
1: book there's also the whole
4: thing with mary jane's marriage where she's just like i met a guy I'm
3: dating a guy. The guy's proposed. We're getting married in five minutes and there's nothing I, you can do about it. Oh, and then the, like, the almost... scene right before that where she's like, it's not that serious and like the very next scene <laughs>
2: <laughs> I know. Like all of a
3: sudden she's addressing <laughs> wedding invitations
2: I almost for, i've somehow forgotten all that stuff because it is it is so marginal in in this film and it is kind of like last minute at the end it's like oh this is actually a thing they have to deal with and not just some sort of th- thing she's talking about mary j thought actually delusional <laughs>
4: she feels delusional at times though there's there's that sequence after he sees her play where they're walking down the street and he's like hey, you want to get some chow mein? And she's like, you can't just come to my play and try to break up my marriage. It's <laughs> like, Lady, I said chow mein, not drop your fiancé and run away but with But in me. fairness,
3: that is what he was That is after. what he wants, but it's still
4: it's okay. Like, she's not Mike Pence. She can go to dinner with a person <laughs> of the opposite sex and, and have it be friends. And she just, she <laughs> blows the heck up at him just instantly. How dare you suggest I should get chow mein with someone who's not my fiancé?
3: I think Mary Jane's motivations are not this uh, movie's Primary concern for for better or
1: worse. <laughs> Can we work work more of Mike Pence references into this podcast? Because um, that, that was an unexpected twist. I
4: understand. There is there, if I if I do have an actual serious objection to this film. Eh, even that's overstating it. There's a little too much nice guy going on with Peter. And I know that he's he's the quintessential nice guy and we're supposed to appreciate him for that. But there is just this kind of like favor-sharking feeling about his, like, I'm going to hang out in the background and make sad eyes at you. And like, you shouldn't go on and live your life because it's going to make me tremendously sad. I'm not going to express how I feel. I'm not going to do anything about like any of the, any other things we've ever talked about. I'm just going to stand here and mope. And there is a degree to which I, I can only sympathize with that so far. I know great power, great responsibility, but you know, also if you want something, at some point you gotta take steps toward it. He's I think that, so the busy, strongest Natasha. part of the movie <laughs> He's
2: so busy. He's he is so silly, busy man. and
4: he's so broke. But the strongest <laughs> yeah. part of the movie is when he's just like, you know, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually do what I want. And he does it for a little while and sees the consequences.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Two two movies with that song. Yeah, I know. Well, well, apparently it's
4: it's a deliberate like the part where he's fixing his bike and the wheel goes out the window. Apparently, is meant as a direct direct (laughs) uh, reference.
3: I do like. I I, I know you you were a little down on it, Tasha, but I do like the kind of slapsticky nature of the humor in this. I I really of the, like, the little thing of him battling the brooms in the broom closet yes. for like way too long. <laughs> yeah, that's like- I completely forgot uh, about it. It's so it. It unnecessary a
2: and, yeah. Yeah, and so, and so uh, fun anyway. And
3: yeah. how much were you thinking,
4: hand her the pizzas and then fight the brooms, man? You could do, you could still get there. Come on, let the brooms fall where they may.
3: Uh, yeah, he, was, he was already like four minutes late at that point. But speaking of, there's also like the good pizza gag when he's actually as Spider-Man and he like goes back to grab the slice, the, mm-hmm. the skyscraper guy. Yeah, from
4: Sky spiegel who was in both evil dead movies the, this film if there's like a, a speaking role where the camera lingers on a face for more than like three seconds it's probably a name you know from another yeah. movie. Oh,
2: and, you, and you get two talk soup or or the soup uh host you get joel McHale and and, and, and uh Hell's, Hell's Hell's Sparks. Sparks. I, i'd yeah. forgotten existed yeah. until <laughs> so, while re-watching and, this film
3: and uh i was watching this with my boyfriend and like and the credits said you know asif Mandi, and we were like wait he's in this movie and he was like literally the first person on the screen <laughs> in the movie we're like oh yep he is in this movie
4: <laughs> and ben Bruce Campbell is the usher mm-hmm. that won't uh, let him through so the good. door and, and Ted Raimi as uh, J. Jonah Jameson's I just I picture him going to his brother and saying can you put me in any role that will let me just hang out with J.K. Simmons like throughout <laughs> shooting
1: well but, no, don't forget Elizabeth Banks either yeah,
4: oh yeah exactly. baby Elizabeth Banks
1: yeah and Dennis Farina oh, no that was the other thing <laughs> <laughs>
4: Daniel Day Kim, obviously Stan Lee's got his cameo. <laughs> it, uh, Brent Briscoe is the guy that shows up with a with guys. A
1: let's just read the cast list. Full. Dylan Baker, right? <laughs> Dylan Baker is his teacher.
2: <laughs> Dylan Baker, poor Dylan Baker. He's he's seated in all three of these Spider-Man oh, movies to be turnip as the lizard and never does. It's like
4: Billy Dee Williams uh, getting set up to be Two Face and then just not getting that chance.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's so we got. Tommy Lee Jones' worst performance ever. Um, we us talk about a few things here. Uh, we mentioned the train scene. I think about, as, I, you know, if this isn't the greatest superhero movie ever made, and I think that's certainly in the discussion. I, it's got to be the greatest scene or, or it's, it's a top three superhero movie scene. I mean, it's, the, the set piece itself is exciting, but the, what it builds to emotionally is just, uh, it's just incredible. Like Tasha, you know, obviously you've had the worst attitude toward this film. Yeah, it still, still worked on you. Well, why does that scene work?
4: It's for the same reason that uh, George R. R. Martin's stuff works, except with less rape and and death. Um, <laughs> Keep going. Yeah, right. <laughs> i I'm subscribing
2: discussed. to your newsletter. This is this is
4: something I've this is something I've also been writing about for a long time. Um, back to AV Club days, like George R. R. Martin. I, I firmly believe that the reason he has built such an audience is that he builds his stories around like profound injustice, and then he just keeps piling on the injustice until one person does a kind thing or a generous. thing thing or an altruistic thing, or even just the just thing. And it feels like the biggest relief in the world. You know, you spend the whole movie like watching the universe pile on Peter Parker, like he can't, he can't help his aunt, he can't keep a job, he can't be with the woman he loves. He can't Explain to his best friend, like who is in agony, what's going on. He can't tell J. Jonah Jameson to take a hike. He can't do any of the things that he wants. And then the city looks at him and sees him for the first time and says, We love you for what you have sacrificed for us. And we will do anything for you, up to and including save your life by getting in the way of the villain. I mean, it's just, it's a tremendous payoff for everything he's suffered. And it's a huge
3: emotional moment
4: just a
1: kid. Mm-hmm. I love that line. You oh, on, are you on kid. board with, uh, with the
2: Christ imagery? Hmm. I mean, sure. Why, why not? Put it Put it in. Why,
3: why does Superman only get the Christ imagery? <laughs> Spread it around. <laughs> All superheroes. All superheroes are Christ. <laughs> then the little kid,
4: who I believe both of those little kids are Tobey Maguire's half-brothers, saying,
2: oh. we won't tell anybody. No, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, everyone's in this movie. Um, we have two big picture things to talk about, uh, and, and whatever else we want to talk about, too, because it's a fun movie to talk about. But... Which do you want to go first? We We've talked about how it fits into the history of superhero movies and how it fits specifically into the Spider-Man trilogy, which means talking about Spider-Man mm-hmm. 3. Well,
3: I, I have almost no recollection of Spider-Man 3. So, uh, I've rewatched
2: if, it fairly recently.
3: Would you like to exercise those demons and then we can uh, the telescope back out to the big picture? The film picture? <laughs> has its defenders.
2: And I really want to be one of them because I, I do like Raimi so much. And I like the other two films so much. I'd love to say, you know you need to give it another shot and it starts out fine you know rewatching it, it starts fine but it's just such a mess and like all like sort of the niggling plot the silliness that, that we've kind of touched on a little bit of this that, that work in this movie that just don't work on it at all the the, the climax makes so no sense there's a the whole emo Peter Parker sequence and <laughs> I've that's no good got something to say about that um I don't know I, I would love to, I'd love to be a defender of that film and I just I just can't but how about Tasha tell, tell me why it's great oh,
4: <laughs> I, I honestly wish I could come in with that level of contrarianism it would be it would be so very very sweet I also have very little memory of it but the the emo uh, Peter Parker scene where he's like strolling down the avenue with his uh, his guy liner and his smirk and his his newly dark hair watching spider-man 2 again where he has the the sequence after the spider-man no more you know straight off the, the the cover of the comic book that had that arc immediately after that when they do the the raindrops montage it's a musical montage where he's walking down the street like feeling good and expressing himself to everyone around him just like you know hey i'm living life now the emo musical sequence made so much more sense to me going back and seeing that sequence. Cause it's just, it's a, it's meant as a dark comic echo mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and people, people dissed on it so hard, but I think Raimi knew exactly what he was doing. Like people didn't like it, but it was a bookend. It was a reference
2: mm-hmm. to himself. Yeah. I just don't work. <laughs> That's the problem. It tries for, you can see what they're going for with a lot of this movie. And, and certainly the Sandman as, as played by Thomas Hayden Church is, Similarly sympathetic in theory, at least it just doesn't work in the film itself. Scott, do you have any thoughts?
1: On yeah, I, I I haven't seen it since it came out, but it was disappointing. I think it does what what happens with a lot of sequels that try to do too much. It just it just kind of collapses under its own mm-hmm. weight. Um, and uh, I think we, you see that happening time and again with franchises. I mean, Spider Man Two is this remarkable. Movie and that it is extremely busy. It has, it does have, it does have a lot of sort of balls in the air, but uh, it's under control. He 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 manages the whole thing. And I think sort of it, like th-
3: a fusion reactor. Exactly. <laughs> 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 right. Exactly.
1: This is if he this Spider-Man three is a fusion reaction uh, going out of control. I, I I do really like the first one as well. I mean, I, I don't want to like dismiss that as some little crude formative thing. I thought no, it was, it's good. It's it is quite good, and and um and those were were a lot of those initial conceptual risks were taken, and and paid off and it's got i hate to use the word iconic but it has a few um you know moments out of time that that, that people remember and that's that's all in the filmmaking so uh, I, I still have a lot of affection for for that movie too but spider-man 2 is kind of where it all comes together for me
3: listen to your keynote Keith it occurred to me and this maybe brings in the uh, question about the history of superhero movies but like this and the x-men franchise were like kind of unfolding concurrently and, mm. it, and they really did kind of you know travel a similar arc with like a good to really good first movie and then a really great sequel and then a third movie that like kind of goes off the rails but the fact that like that was sort of the template that was being set I do wonder how much That affected our current superhero movie paradigm of like, the first movie is just the first movie, you know, we're setting up for the thing that comes next and the thing that comes next and probably end after three. I don't know if any uh, modern superhero franchise has gone past three without rebooting i mean N- not I, not including not your, your group
2: i mean x-men's like its own weird super continuity or something yeah but,
3: but yeah i think it was it like i said established a, a paradigm that maybe we're still sort of seeing the the echoes of today to a certain extent when in terms of like having a really great sequel because with with superhero movies like the first movie you're a certain you're beholden to a certain amount of origin story stuff table setting yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, who it, is thor yeah <laughs> yeah, and you know and with spider-man you have to do the the spider the spider thing I, you know i i love this movie because there is no actual spider in it for once, <laughs> which is always a, a danger with me and spider-man mm-hmm. so you know
1: well that was that was something the first movie handled well though uh, that just the the that origin stuff is all it was mm-hmm. an p- absolute pleasure in the first one when he just when he does all of his woohooing and mm-hmm. and uh you know initially starts you know, slamming into building walls before he figures out uh, how to how to fly. Also, I'm yeah. also very pro. Let's just let's just crack open this argument, baby. <laughs> I'm very pro organic web shooters. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. This, yeah, not into it.
2: But he's a oh. Spider
4: Man. Why can't he have organic web shooters? What do make Because, him because if he did, they should come out of his butt.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's gross. What do you? It's gross. I don't know. It's gross.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it should be.
2: It's part. It's absurd. He's like he does all these spider features, except except he has to like. But Peter Parker's also a scientific genius, so that's that's. <laughs>
4: <laughs> also, it's really important that those uh the, those webs are like chemically designed to dissolve after a little while, so he's not just like leaving smears of organic solidified super goop all over New York.
1: Really was it really we're we're it's we're fine. It's just not
2: my favorite thing element.
1: But you're like, but you're very conservative when it comes to these like canonical yeah. comic book things,
2: aren't you? I, I you can't. Is it
3: the bodily fluid element
1: there's, that, there's is,
2: that, that is that is too? A and then, and then, you know, you get this whole uh, loss of confidence, losing his powers, yeah. can't, can't, it produce, gets a can't produce the fluid thing yeah. uh, yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> like in this movie. It's like it's maybe a little too grown up.
4: <laughs> I I, even leaving aside the, that, the metaphorical aspect of that. Although it's really hard to, because it really makes me roll my eyes, I'm I'm not into it. I'm really not into. He got his powers from a radioactive spider, but they only work if he's if he's got Dumbo's feather in his hand. Like mm. the whole powers going away thing in this movie really does not work for me. I, I like it, I, I, Come
2: on, I, I think it, it's a grown organic up. web shooter? We're Going back on to that, on. right? We're, we're moving on. Uh, I, I I like it though. I feel like I feel like that's I don't know, I think that's 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 an adult. Uh, mm. Problem. I mean, it's a film where he's developing adult problems. It's like you know, life beats you up. You know, you kind of just want to curl up in a little ball and not do anything. And, we'll, and that's something we'll get into hey, a, now, Yeah, Let's not get too. personal.
4: Let's let's not describe my life here.
3: Yeah, Come on. Well, I mean, it, all, it, it's all, a,
2: our, all our lives. I, I like it, it too. the no, no, media, we always get. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like I,
3: I, uh, I, haven't, I haven't written anything I've loved in forever because, like, it's you know the world because your web like, shooters don't work. Yeah, anymore. exactly. The world the world's got me down and I can't shoot webs and I can't write graphs. Oh. You know, but can you bounce off a wall and be fine? Depends how much I've had to drink speaking
4: of wisecracks i will admit as is, is not sold as i am on the whole losing the powers thing the gag of him leaping
3: from building to building yelling
4: i'm, I'm back! back i'm back my I'm back!
3: back i laughed yeah i laughed pretty hard at that that that, that, even, that got a big today. that got a big laugh in this household of people with not great backs uh i have a <laughs>
2: quick question for you to, to address now before we move on mm-hmm. just so it's out of the way Animated spiders? Do they creep you out too, or, or um... I, I
3: can deal with them? I don't okay. love them. Okay, we can talk about it with uh, Into the Spider Verse, oh, you, you know, if we click, want. But you yeah, know. I just wanted to get um, that taken care of now. Your your friend and mine, Oliver Sava, uh, who, uh, is a comics guy and is my personal comics librarian who who gives me things to read and whenever he's, he's your
2: comic sommelier. yes, exactly.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and when Eisner winning comic sommelier. And, <laughs> indeed. And whenever he gives me a comic with a spider in it he puts a little post-it note over the panel and just writes spider on it so I know <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> he's so kind
2: so I'm, I'm going to posit that it's, an, it's in a weird place where you know I think superficially it has a lot more in common with an MCU movie and the tonally i think i think it's light enough to to, to work as a, as an MCU movie in some way but i i also feel like this is more aligned in some ways with the batman film the christopher nolan batman films where you have a single director coming in and sculpting a whole universe around a single character and having a, a, a clear vision for what that character could be. And I feel like MCU has, I mean, I'm not even making a judgment call here, but I feel like you're getting, that's made, been made increasingly impossible in MCU, where I think you have like these little pockets that the characters that are kind of crafted around particular characters. I feel like the Guardians movies in particular kind of have their own like sort of little universe. And I feel like uh, the Thor movies, maybe not, uh, always the strongest efforts, but they definitely have like, a distinctive look and feel. But I think also they're all always servicing this larger shared universe. And I think there's um, the Spider-Man movies and, and the Batman movies that came shortly after this were unburdened by that. And I think mm-hmm. there are certain advantages to that as well.
4: I feel like this both kind of marked a, a changing point where we were crossing over from superheroes being largely uh, dudes in suits, Which never quite looked right; they never quite fit right to suits that could be convincing when they were when they were just actors, and to CGI that could be convincing. You know, where it wasn't it wasn't always obvious that you're watching like a little digital wireframe thing move around. This feels like an important stepping stone along the way to like all CGI movies, um, essentially. I just watched Aquaman last night and there are, there are a lot of fight scenes in that movie that are not as good as the fight scenes in this. There's a lot of sequences of CGI characters doing like close quarter battles with each other. That is not as convincing as what goes on in this movie. It just uh, like from a, from a special effects and a costuming and a combat uh, standpoint like this this movie is better than movies that are being made right now
2: yeah I just, I mean, just a quick aside on Aquaman I, there's a lot I like in that movie I, I've been warming to it since the further I've gotten away from it and I kind of want to see it again I think my kid would probably like it but, but also but the, the You put that much I've said it before On this podcast But put that many Digital effects up On on a screen My brain kind of shuts down Like I don't really process What's happening At any any moment You know the fight scenes Of that are are to me They're not suicide squad Level headache But they're also Kind of overwhelming
3: That that said um, Kind of one of the Like go to jokes Or observations About bad modern Superhero battles Is you know They they culminate in The hero fighting A big ball of energy Mm -hmm. And Spider-Man 2 Ends (laughs) with fighting A big ball of energy yeah. You know, like this the, the precedent there. It's not blue energy. You know, modern superhero movies, it's always blue energy. But that did kind of make me laugh, given how much of a kind of a running joke, oh, he battles a big ball of energy, has, has become.
4: Another thing about the Raimi Spider-Man films is, I mean, you look at something like Aquaman, and one of Aquaman's flaws, uh, or maybe it's a selling point for some, is that it takes place, as you say, in a very crowded CGI world, where... Everywhere Aquaman goes, uh, it's a, a billion like light up fish or a billion light up vehicles or a billion light up cities. And it all just feels it's a huge artificial world that's just very clearly digital. The Spider-Man movies that Raimi made are so set in New York. Mm -hmm. They're so specific to New York in terms of, you know, except when they're being shot in Chicago. But in terms of the accents, in terms of the individual people that you meet, in terms of... The pizza. The pizza, the (laughs) setting, the backgrounds, the corner bodegas, the crowds that kind of come around uh, whenever a a disaster happens. Like, these feel very place-specific. And, you know, Spider-Man was always kind of place-specific in a way. You know, Batman lived in a made-up city. Superman lived in a made-up city. Spider-Man was your friendly, actual, existing neighborhood, Spider-Man. This movie also just feels like part of a set of kind of turning points towards, like, the specificity of place in superhero movies.
2: Well, well there's still more to talk about. We'll get into it with, with uh, uh, in the next episode. But, but Spider-Man 2, good movie. In conclusion... <laughs>
3: The best movie,
2: Tasha? Question mark? Question question mark? mark. Wow. To be continued. Next issue. All right. With that, we're (laughs) going to wind things down. We'll be right back with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We're still waiting on some feedback for our pairing of Mean Girls and The Favorite. In the meantime, let's share some letters about other recent episodes. Scott, I believe you have something on Widows, right? Correct. Uh, Kevin writes,
1: On the subject of Widows, I was curious about the gang's thoughts on Carrie Coon playing sort of the Pete Best of the Widows team, (laughs) curiously left out of the action, though not without explanation, and barely even warranting a mention in the discussion. I found it such an odd choice given the way it adds an asterisk to the film's premise and advertising, all of which paints Cynthia Arrivo as an equal player in mourning rather than a late addition to the roster. I don't know if this reflects Linda LaPlante's original miniseries, but even if it does, it still strikes me as a plot point that would normally be shed to streamline the story for feature length.
3: It's a good point. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sad we didn't talk about Carrie Coon <laughs> on the podcast, because Carrie Coon's great, but she also is like not quite afterthought as as the letter says there's explanation given for why her role is what it is but you know she is definitely removed from the action and given that so much of that episode was uh, devoted to uh, explaining the (laughs) the reasons for the action to Tasha. I just have like 14 (laughs) more questions about what goes on in Widows. Uh, So uh, since Tasha did not have a question about (laughs) Gary Coon's character. No, uh, I I knew Kevin would have us covered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Kevin.
4: I mean, I think that it it gives the story a kind of like weird lumpy shape um, Mm -hmm. because you have this like late arriving heist member out of nowhere and you have this person who in theory should be part of the story who isn't. But I feel like the setup for her being one of the widows is important because otherwise she wouldn't be a character at all. Like you would have, when she does turn up in the story, you would have no idea why she's there and what comes out of her being there wouldn't be nearly as impactful as it is. It it does come across as a weird story beat mm-hmm. and I feel like she should have been more involved, but I'm I'm into Carrie Coon being more involved in anything that she yeah. appears in. Yeah,
3: and and she's always not involved enough. Like <laughs> you know, like, yeah, uh, like, like like Infinity War. It was like Carrie Coon's in Infinity War for like. 90 seconds she's, she's become her like voice. one of the queens
4: of the like underused underseen possibly shot 12 more scenes and was cut out of the story like actors
1: except when she's on tv then she gets yeah. then she gets amazing roles uh she's the drama
2: the drama quote on Judy Greer I guess maybe
1: <laughs> yeah I just I, I don't know that um it, if the if Widows has has a flaw I think it is the scripting and the plotting and the, the that feeling that um, they're just trying to cram so much that you wouldn't, I think. Otherwise, if you were doing an original screenplay rather than an adapted screenplay, uh, I mean, you know, you don't necessarily have to know that this was adapted from a, in this case, a miniseries, or you know, could have been a book to, 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 to feel like they're trying to put in a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that and that you wouldn't naturally make the film this. You know, as busy as it is and it is well orchestrated I think generally as the movie is it's got too, too much going on and there are some imbalances and I think Harry Coon is definitely one of them.
4: We'll, we'll always have the leftovers. <laughs>
2: we also received a letter about our Shirkers other side of the wind pairing that touches on some larger issues. Genevieve would you like to read that one?
3: I would. Will writes I really enjoyed your pairing of the other side of the wind and Shirkers. Thank you Will. Uh, for me the two films illustrated a generation gap that has emerged in film criticism. Gen Xers like myself and previous generations certainly hunted out new filmmakers, but we did have an established pantheon of classic auteurs like Wells, Hitchcock, Bergman, Kurosawa, etc. Millennials, however, having grown up with the DVD explosion and streaming services rather than video rentals, have access to an order of magnitude of newer films. The fact that a lot more of these films are being made by individuals other than non-white men brings a refreshing variety of perspectives and worldviews that the earlier canon simply didn't have. However, I wonder how much we're losing by losing this canon, or at least elements of it. As fellow Gen Xers, what do Scott, Tasha, and Keith think? And Genevieve, that's me. What's your perspective?
2: Hmm. Do we accept the premise of this letter, though? I don't know if I necessarily accept the premise of this letter, but I don't necessarily I mean, have evidence either. I see know? it
4: playing out in my own life. Okay. Like when I when I looked back at this year when I was when I was doing my list making, I'm like, every year I see more films from this year and fewer films from other years like we we throw little noir parties at our place um where we dig up some like old 50s through 70s noir films and revisit things we haven't seen and uh occasionally my job will call on me to to watch something classic for comparison but for the most part Almost all of the non twenty eighteen films that I saw this year I saw for this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I like I think that's why we do a public service and and everybody mm. should heap praise on us and send us money and whatnot <laughs> for giving them an excuse to dig up older films. But it's harder and harder because I don't feel like I, I I barely feel like I kept up on 2018 films and I definitely am not doing enough to increase my knowledge of pre 2018 films this year.
2: Yeah. But do we feel that the younger, the, the younger generation is not watching the Canon is only watching newer films
3: I I think I think that's really individual, you know. Like I I think it depends where your love of movies came from, how it developed, you know. Maybe to a certain extent, how you grew up or what you saw growing up. But I, I think like ascribing it to like a generational divide is maybe less accurate than just ascribing it to the different movie climate we're in now which kind of speaks to what Tasha is talking about where you have to like kind of make a decision between Keeping up with the, the glut of stuff that is out there and readily available in so many different forms or seeking out things that are maybe not necessarily as readily available or not as relevant to your job as a film critic, you know, and whether you make the time to make that part of your cinematic diet, I think is a very... Uh, individual thing like I, I know some very young critics I think of someone like Charles Bermesco you know who is very eager to dig way back in the in the canon. and he knows made... his stuff. Yeah
2: exactly. Vikram Murthy he, knows his yeah, stuff. Yeah you know? ex- exactly so hi guys,
4: Kevin, <laughs> Kevin McFarlane yeah. Noah Cruikshank like people who we, we used to get interns in at the A.V. Club that would be like in their very early 20s and for the most part had, were really surprisingly well versed in the classics.
3: That said I do think the interesting part of this letter is uh, where where Will notes that you know the fact that the, more of these films are being made by individuals other than non-white men brings a refreshing variety of perspectives. And I do think, in recent years, there has been a lot more pushback against the idea of the canon that is mostly that mostly comprises films by white men as somehow infallible or more important than you know these more modern movies. And you know I think everyone kind of falls at different places on the spectrum in terms of how much they ascribe to that but i think it is kind of an important part of your consideration of like i said what should be part of your film diet
1: i would say though that the canon and kind of reacting against the canon is sort of a thing that's been uh, that i could always remember doing in fact my my major in college was comparative literature which is just nothing of, Full of people who were rebelling against <laughs> against uh, the classics majors and the English majors and that sort of thing. What sort of you know dead European you know men were we're reading, but you know I, I, it's very hard anecdotally to really grasp what people are seeing. You know, I mean, because cause really, you know, I mean, it, at a touch of a button, you have access to a whole lot of stuff. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I wish you had access to Filmstruck still, but <laughs> but um, but that that's all there. I mean, if I were a cinephile. You know, if I were a young person today, I, I feel like I'd still have plenty of opportunities to dig into the canon and seek out Seek out things. I mean, you can watch
3: Rebecca on YouTube. Exactly. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs)
4: With with filmstruck filmstruck, gone. You you can subscribe to the Criterion Channel. Become a charter member. Mm -hmm. uh, Help support them. Get the uh, same films. I mean,
1: I remember when I was when I was in. I mean, I'd see some films in in in, at my college library, but you know, we we would go on these little like road trips to the to this video store in called Movies We're Seeing in Atlanta. It was like. An hour and a half or two hours away, you know, to rent movies. It's like you don't have to do that anymore. Um, But I I will say, I am sensitive to those occasions in which I'm I'm reading writing by professionals who are who. Don't know their
3: stuff. I mean, like, like yeah, you've got mail. <laughs> yes, exactly. I was gonna say that
1: exactly. Today there was a, a piece, you know, the New York Times, but not one of their film writers. Amanda Hess is more; she's a, more of a general culture writer. Yeah. I would, I would say, but but she wrote a defense of You Got Mail, which is not a film I like that much, but it never made mention once of of uh, the Shop Around the Corner. It's like, boy, don't bury that masterpiece that influenced, uh, um, that the, you know, that that You Got Mail remade. So um, I'm sensitive to those things. And I think the purpose of this whole of this podcast is is to remind you know everyone and remind ourselves and to stay in touch with the past.
2: Yeah, I think it's a conversation between the past and the present. And I think and I think the 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 people who are going to have something interesting to say are going to be omnivorous in what they consume, whether they're old Gen Xers like us or up young up and comers like Genevieve. Um, <laughs> I do but... think that
4: the that the real threat is the canon disappearing uh, just, you know, if criterion channel hadn't uh, been picked up, if it hadn't been moving forward, like Filmstruck's disappearance would have just been the erasure of the ability to see a lot of films without spending a lot of money yeah. on, on physical items, which a lot of people don't want anymore.
2: Right. And and one thing that has changed from when I was growing up is that there's a lot more just kind of floating around on television. Like I remember I had the Leonard Malton book and I looked for a three and a half and four star movies and, watch them all. Just as an example, I just wrote something on Laurel and Hardy, you know, Laurel and Hardy movies to watch if you're going to enjoy the film um, Stan and Ollie. Um, and, you know, I had to ask, well, where do people watch Laurel and Hardy anymore? It's not on television. It used to be on television all the time. And basically the best way to watch the Laurel and Hardy movies worth watching, or most of them anyway, is this 10-disc DVD box set that you have to tell people that, you know, you can get it cheaper, but it retails for $100. It's like, this is this. this, this turns up on TCM. You're just not going to be exposed to one of the greatest comic teams ever, you know? And and, and uh, people that are, the, the, the you know, characters and, you know, actors that still exist as Cultural icons, without actually people necessarily being exposed to to those things. So what I'm saying is, spend a hundred dollars, <laughs> buy this box set, and you're really going to have enjoy some great. Well, I, I
3: mean, that is kind of the the catch twenty two of the of the streaming era. It's like you can seek out whatever you want but the the joy of discovery is kind of gone you can't just stumble upon things mm. a, a easily as easily as you I, I think there is
2: that though like you know on prime you dig you know you dig on prime you find this weird stuff like i remember talking sure. i forget who i was talking to talking about how like they have sort of a nostalgic associations with like finding certain types of torrent files on sites, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like kind of like finding an old video. And yeah. It, so that, maybe it's know. just
3: sort of the, the mechanic of it has changed from, you know, flipping channels to flipping through the categories on your streaming service but, and from going to your local yeah. DVD rental store to finding things that people have uploaded
4: to YouTube or, uh, checking out Nicholas Wending Refn's site where he's like up- uploading all kinds of like crazy stuff that he's gotten the rights to
2: by NWR.com. Oh yeah. That's an amazing, it's an amazing site for, for a very uh, unusual selection of films. <laughs> we always appreciate it when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations so we can feature them on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll jump deeper into the Spider-Verse with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, remember to keep your Spidey suit clean and ready, because you never know when you'll need it. In the chill of night, at
4: the scene of a crime, Like a streak of night, he arrives
0: just in time. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And thing. He's ignored. Action is his reward to him. Life is a great big day. Wherever there's a pain, you'll find a Spider-Man.